Welcome back to the VIP Jazzwall Report for part two of this summer's discussion of current events, where we get a spiritual perspective on current issues that in some way affect us all, because the outcomes will determine the way of life we leave for our children. I'm VIP Jazzwall, and our guest is Pastor Dean Curry, the lead pastor at Life Center Church in Tacoma, Washington. He shepherds one of the largest multi-generational congregations in the state. Welcome back to the show, Pastor Dean. Thank you, Vip. It's great to be back with you again. Well, a lot's happened since last week, and I want to focus on a few of the issues uh, that have arisen because I want our listeners to get another perspective from yourself. Yes, I'm honored to to offer, to opine, as they say. Well, let's start with something a little lighthearted. You watch ABC News? I do. Well, they are making news of their own because one of their news editors, who goes by the name of Dawn, um and that's D-O-N, decided to have a sex change in May and then gave herself the name Dawn again. That's D-A-W-N. But now he, or is it she, says that it was all a mistake and wants to become a man again. Uh, Dawn claims that, I don't know whether to say he or she here, but it was misdiagnosed by doctors. Oh, no. And then blames its mother for giving, I'm, I'm really confused, he or she, uh, and then blames his mother for giving him female hormones at a young age. Okay? On top of that, uh, after becoming a man again, Don's decided that he's going to continue to remain a strong supporter of diversity, well, he should know, and an advocate of equal rights and other LGBT issues. Now, I thought that was rather generous and noble of uh, him or her. I'm not sure why these societies would want to be associated with Dawn, especially because, you know, if you're going to be blaming health care and your mother for your hesitation of whether you should wear a bra or not, uh, leads me to wonder, you know, what, what what's going on. And then you wonder why our society is spiraling into the abyss. And I was thinking, actually, you know, you don't need a sex change for your body and your mind to be ruled by a female. Marriage would do that to you. <laughs> All right. I hope your your spouse is not listening to this, Vip. But yeah, I, I, I see what you're getting at. And you know, it really leads to the question, uh, despite the lighter side of it, how far should we go in identifying ourselves? Uh, well, I think identity issues are a massive problem in America. In fact... It's, it's, I think it's a curious phenomenon that is it's only, I wouldn't say only, but it's especially prominent in affluent societies like ours, right? Where we have all kinds of free time. Yeah, we don't have many problems, so, you know, we try we to make them. We don't have a lot of problems, uh, but we have a gift for creating them. Uh, I'm not sure exactly, you know, how this gets started. I know that, you know, that I think there are some... 700,000 people that identify themselves as transgender in America out of, you know, 300 million people. So apparently there are lots of people that are struggling with this issue, but identity issues show up in all kinds of issues. When you when you look at marriages breaking up because somebody's out trying to, quote-unquote, find themselves in a a relationship with a younger woman or if somebody's quitting a solid job pursue some other idea or dream a lot at the core a lot of those issues are identity issues where we where we don't we're not happy with who we are on the inside we're not happy about who we are on the inside is that because of lack of achievement i'm not sure you know we have grade inflation in america people have never gotten better grades we've never given away more trophies to our kids If there's a generation that has been applauded and awarded, it's the people that we're raising in this generation right now. And yet I think they're having more identity issues than ever. If you think about it, really, I don't think it's just about affirmations or um, awards. I think at at the core level, we are trying to solve uh, spiritual dilemmas with physical fixes. Now, this is a, I mean, obviously a sexual gender issue that he's trying to fix with, a, as you say, a bra or a sex change. But it's not a whole lot different from some of the other things that we try to satisfy inner problems with, where you try to get a new car, have a bigger house, 
now you need a boat, now you need a beach house. And we, we're always in this culture trying to satisfy inner needs with material or physical changes. I don't think it works, but we try nevertheless. Yeah, I just get, um, you know, I find that a little confusing sometimes because seeking material gain is just a reflection of your success. Is it? I don't know. I, uh, we, I don't know if you've ever heard of the phrase affluenza. No. But we're, it's a, a play, obviously, on the word influenza, where this sickness that we have because of our affluence. I'm not sure that we're any happier. I mean, there has there ever been a generation of people that have more than we do? I mean, if you're if you're anchor or you're a news uh, person for ABC News, you're pretty close to the pinnacle of your profession. You probably see the world. You make a nice living. And yet at a core level, you go to bed at night wondering about some fairly fundamental things because you've never been able to address the core happiness issues of who you really are. And as a person of faith and someone who dialogues with so many people about their faith, I would say that's an issue that is solved not in a doctor's office, but in a in a house of worship where people can talk with you about how you were created and why you were created, and, and uh, that's why we have our spiritual pursuits. Well, I guess sometimes, you know, when, when you are, I think, getting material things, um, aspiring to be better in what you do, does provide some level of happiness. Of course, you have to have it in combination with everything else. Nothing That's on right. its own yeah. is going to be the solution. That's right. Zig Ziglar, the famous motivational uh, speaker, he passed away this year, but he uh, was famous for saying, uh, m money, there are some things that only money can do, and for what you need money for, there's no, there's no replacing it. So there's no question we need money and material success, and Mer America has been great. We are a generous people. We've been great at using our money to help other people get clean water and and health care around the world, America's philanthropy. But in the pursuit of that, we've lost our uh, we've lost a lot of our core contentedness. I'm not sure America's happier today than it was 50 years ago, even though we're certainly wealthier. Can too much on that note? Can too much religion make you happy? Because I've never seen monks and nuns laugh. <laughs> I don't think I know this sounds funny coming from a pastor. I think religion is one of the biggest problems in the world. I think religion will steal a lot of joy. No question about it. Well, it's I guess it can be a toxic force if interpreted the wrong way or misinterpreted. Yeah, or if you're pursuing in the name of truth, you're pursuing principles that lead you away from from happiness. I, I often tell people, uh, even though I pastor a quote-unquote Christian church, I tell people I, I gave up on being a Christian. Now I just want to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus was called the Prince of Peace. He was uh, a, a man who, you know, got people thinking at a different level, and he uh, taught love. Children loved him, but religious leaders hated him. Politicians persecuted him and killed him, but the poor... The outcast, they followed him and adored him. I'd like to be that kind of a person, uh, minus the crucifixion, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I guess the sun never sets for dawn anyway. But let's move on. And the sun still rises on another issue, A-Rod. Mm. Now, he's been suspended for possible use of steroids and or power-enhancing drugs. Yeah. But my question is this. To what extent should sports and life allow a level playing field because the argument can go that trying to make a level playing field in in a theoretical world might mean that no one wins um and sports becomes a socialist or communist pastime where everybody either wins or loses everyone gets an equal score i think you know uh, it seems like a-rod broke people's hearts it's interesting to hear people write and talk so much about it mm how passionate they are about it. I'm not sure if it if it tells us about how baseball should be played or, and, and about what's fair or not fair. If, if we ask the ethics question, I think 
an equally valuable question is, what does this situation tell us about how important sports is in our culture? This this idea that multimillionaires are competing for even more riches and you know, the Congress and the Senate are holding hearings. Is this, is this the most important issue going on in our culture? I think it's never, it's never fair or, or right to break the established rules of any endeavor that you're going to enter into, whether it's tiddlywinks or base, professional baseball. But I, I do think it also reflects poorly on us as a culture that sports has taken such a big place in our in our hearts but taking that one step forward isn't at, at what level do you say that you're allowed to increase your competitiveness yeah you know is, yeah. is, is, is taking steroids a bad thing yeah i mean some people i i suppose in the extreme would say then taking vitamins is also um you know, is enhancing you or lifting weights. And I, yeah, I'm not entirely sure that I'm the person to speak on the, the physicality of sports but and what's fair or not fair. It seems like, um, well, but come on, it you're doesn't the voice make of you God. more, it doesn't make you more astute at your craft, does it? A-Rod, is he great because he was stronger or is he great because he has phenomenal hand-eye coordination. I think you could pump me full of steroids and I would never hit a home run. So these these are wonderful athletes and they, again, have super drive, super competitiveness and that drive and competitiveness, competitiveness has gotten out of hand and so they've gone that last 4%, 5% to cheat, to get back in the game faster I think that's unethical, but I do think it's overstating it to say that that makes them a great athlete, clearly. If you took, uh, I know that we're, we're not uh, totally acquainted yet, Vip, but I'm guessing that if I gave you steroids every day, you could not do the Tour de France, even finish it, much less win it. So when you see a guy like Lance Armstrong, who is able to compete and win all of those yellow jerseys, you say, wow, regardless of whether or not he broke the rules, he still is a phenomenal athlete. And it's too bad that his drive, the drive that got him in the race, the drive that helped him compete to win the race, it ultimately took away everything that, that he was hoping to get. So it's not really the fact that he used the steroids, but the very fact that if he did, he broke the rules yeah, that was that, set. To me, that's the ethical issue. I don't think it... It's I, breaking I, the rules that matter, not what you did. I think so. Hmm. Listen, is it immoral to put a little grease on a baseball when you throw it? We know that some of these professional athletes, you know, uh, pitchers, they'll put, a little, they'll put a little something on the bill of their cap and then they'll wipe their cap and get it on their fingers and then they'll throw it and the ball will take a weird turn. Uh, it's not mentioned in the Ten Commandments. It's, it's hardly the greatest atrocity going on in the world today. But what it does tell you is that you entered into this arena agreeing to an established set of rules and your, your ambition is driving you to break those established rules even after you agreed to them so that you could get more money, get more praise, have another win. And I think that's the ethical dilemma. Uh, if everybody decides to take steroids, then obviously I don't think it's a problem. But uh, Or if, they, if everybody decides you could throw a baseball with a little Vaseline on it. But it's, that's not the world they live in, and that's the core issue. Well, talking about atrocities, um, recently this week, two children were strangled by a python while they were sleeping. Yeah. And I think it happened in Canada. Um, it seemed really tragic, R truly the death of innocence. And I actually thought it was significant because here you have a serpent 
and in religious context it represents satan hmm. and children represent god in a way my my question is and i'm sure you've been asked this before why do these tragedies happen in our lives why does god allow this it is the great question it is a great question uh one philosopher put it this way it's it's not fair to ask why do bad things happen to good people without also asking its companion question which says why does anything good happen to bad people we're not exactly all saints fip so it's it if bad things happening is a reflection of god and his neglect or his uh, lack of communication with us then what about all the good things we have i think we have a lot to celebrate god i think we can see evidence that god is good for instance uh this this is a fairly primitive idea isn't it that a snake sneaks into a house and uh kills two children has that ever happened in antiquity i would say to you that was probably fairly normal in some cultures in fact in some primitive areas it's probably still pretty normal the fact that we have made so many advances the fact that we're as safe as we are and that death and tragedy has become an anomaly instead of something that is the norm the fact that we live to 80 years and not 30 the fact that we are shielded from the uh um from the harshness of nature is um has i think made us a little oversensitive uh, this is a tragedy to be sure but on a philosophical level i would say everybody dies fip and it's not a tragedy to die it's part of the process of life and the real question is when people think that they're guaranteed an 80 year life and therefore they waste what they've got that's happening all the time the death of innocence the death of these children seems against the natural order of things and it's heartbreaking if i had to sit with that family as i've done over the last 20 years hundreds of times as i've walked with families through the loss of their children but we believe in eternity as followers of jesus and we believe in heaven and i don't we don't believe those children are gone we just believe they're not here and so um it takes away some of the sting but there's no question life is difficult and everybody uh transitions out of here it's just a metaphor a... of birth for instance in order to get here you had to die to the first world you ever knew that was the world of your mother's womb you lived in it for 9 months it was a world of water and darkness not not much sound and one day after 9 months you died to that world and you were born into this world a world of summertime and baseball and steroids and good days and bad days it's a totally different universe a totally different way we believe that's what happened to those children and there's no question bad things happen to good people Well I believe there's an evil force in the world that and it's not just all happiness and light I believe that in evil as well and I and I believe that the world reflects a fall the presence of evil that that uh, there's a deterioration and a sadness to life that nobody nobody can escape You know as someone who let's say is more naive than yourself um loss of life is one thing loss of innocence for me really makes me question the value of god because it's two kids one's 5 and one's 7 yeah and and what a way to go terrible that makes me and i'm sure sometimes your your followers would come to you and say and it really questions the presence of the value of god yeah and in in these sort of situations how how can god help and that's where you come in going forward how do you keep the faith in god how do you increase it mm-hmm. yeah you know vip a lot of times i end up just sitting and listening because 
anybody who tells you they understand the mystery of God is is lying to you. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm not a carnival barker who can give easy answers to difficult questions. I have a niece who was born the same time as my son, just eight weeks apart, I think it was. She was born without her 13th chromosome. So she doesn't have ear canals. She, 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 uh, she's never spoken. She's never heard my voice or her parents' voice. And I received a healthy son. He's now 20 years old. He's a college student at Arizona State University. He's had a full life. And we're still changing diapers on my niece 20 years later. I'm not sure I have easy answers for why bad things happen. But I know that throughout the scriptures, particularly the Christian scriptures, uh, the question is not whether or not God's going to protect you from evil. It, It posits, it asserts, evil is there, sadness comes, the rain, the wisdom books say, falls on the just and the unjust. Everybody has a bad day. But then it says, God wants to walk with you through it. So I tell people, if you're mad at God, then scream at him. If you're happy with him, then thank him. Just like you would if I did something that you didn't understand, or if if you felt like I had the power to control something or insert myself and I didn't. Um, It's a dialogue. No easy answers. This is a very brutal life, more so for people that uh, that will never hear this show than for us. You know, when you look at a country like Lesotho, South Africa, where I was not too long ago, and they have a 30% HIV infection rate. That's not uh, that's not just uh, uh, a homosexual disease. There's, there are children. Talk about loss of innocence. There are kids born HIV positive there every day and they don't have parents, they're raised by the village. It's a tough life in Lesotho if you're a kid. Yet they're laughing, and they're grateful for what they've got, and they're being kids as long as they can be kids. And um, we have to celebrate the one and cope with and walk with the other. Right. Well, while we're on the topic of gaining strength from religion, uh, the U.S. embassies... All 21 of them closed for around a week all across the Middle East and North Africa. Yes, I heard that. And there have been reports from intelligence agencies of a possibility of a major attack from al-Qaeda. The definition of al-Qaeda is it's an international organization of loosely affiliated cells that carry out attacks and bombings in the attempt to disrupt the economies and influence of Western nations and advance Islamic fundamentalism. Now... I picked up on the words Islamic fundamentalism because I never hear of Christian fundamentalists or in recent times the so-called fight for Christianity. Uh, Do you think Christianity as a religion has become too weak in the eyes of others because we are seen as either too forgiving or too peaceful? It's just a totally different premise. When you get to the heart of Christianity, it's the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, who, as I said earlier, was the Prince of Peace, right? Mm -hmm. So to be more fundamentally a follower of Jesus is to be more peaceful, not more violent. I don't don't ever see that as a uh, bad thing, Vip. uh, When we look back at when followers of Jesus didn't exhibit that, you look back at the uh, Crusades that went on hundreds of years ago, we're still reeling from the consequences of when Christianity went militant. If you look at what happened a few years ago in Kosovo and and uh, Croatia there, where Christians started killing Muslims, not followers of Jesus, but Christians, quote-unquote, who weren't acting like Jesus, and they start massacring Muslims, it's against the natural order. When you look at a movement, what you have to look at is, what are the fundamental tenets, and are its followers exhibiting it? When you see a, someone who says they're a follower of Jesus, and they're exhibiting violence, they're blowing up abortion clinics, or they're killing Muslims in the name of Christ, they aren't mimicking the teachings and followings of Jesus. Uh, it's the antithesis of who Jesus was. I think, sadly, um, and this is, this is obviously a... Uh, on a pointed opinion, there are people 
that uh, when when they're living out the the Muslim faith, these Al Qaeda people, they think that they're following the fundamental teachings of Islam. Uh, I hope they're not. I have I, I have to plead ignorance because I don't know enough about the Muslim faith, and I know many friends that are Muslims that would um, take exception with the idea that that is the true Muslim faith. But I know that those people believe they're they're exhibiting it, and it's uh, tragic. Well, it seems, you know, we're fighting in cross-purposes because they're fighting in the name of religion. Uh-huh. We're fighting against terror. Well, brother, uh, let me give you a few ideas. How many bullets do you need in order to create peace? I don't think you have enough bombs to make somebody peaceful. As the, as the old saying goes, an eye for an eye eventually leaves everybody blind and toothless. Um, you, you've got at some point to say, let's have a revolution of love. Let's have a revolution of love. Let's, I mean, let's get people sharing and talking. Here's an idea, for instance. Is there anybody, any politician, any mayor of any town, any city council that's for children in our communities using drugs? Of course not. They're all against it. And yet, drugs are being sold in our communities, and, and kids are using them. Why? Because somebody, drug dealers, people who are growing it underneath the radar, underneath the culture, they're committed every day to getting those drugs out. They're so committed that they're changing a generation that's becoming addicted. What if there were people, what if all of us got up every morning and said, underneath the radar, apart from a political movement, apart from some um, posturing at the United Nations, we all wanted to be more loving. So when we see, we have two mosques in our town. And every time I drive past one, I just put my hand up as I drive past it, and I out loud bless that place. And I say, may that mosque be a place of peace. And when I see a friend who's a, a Muslim, I, I extend the hand of friendship. And I, on my own part, try to start a revolution of love, because I'll tell you what, Vip, this in the name of religion, destroying each other thing, I can't imagine that's what the Creator had in mind for us. I just don't think that's ethical, moral, or wise at any level. Well, hold that thought, because we got a question from one of our listeners. goes by the name of Lloyd Brooks, and he asked, Does your love of an enemy go so far as not to protect your own self, family, and friends? No, I don't think it does. Jesus, when he said to, uh, in one occasion in the New Testament, when he said to his followers, go out in my name and in love, and, 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 w and when you're going, protect yourself. Take a dagger, he said. Mm -hmm. there, are, there are people along the road that want to harm you. But the core teaching of Jesus was that we're to love our enemies, and to be honest, we do a lot in the name of self-defense, FIP, that has nothing to do with self-defense. I, I don't know of a safer place in the world. There are places around the world. Last year, there were 100,000 followers of Jesus who were murdered for, for being a follower of Jesus in Muslim countries primarily. So it's not safe to be a follower of Jesus. But in New York City, it's pretty safe. Yeah. In Tacoma, Washington, pretty safe. So we're armed to the teeth, waiting for somebody to look at us the wrong way. I think we have to defend ourselves. But I think if we lived the teachings of Jesus more, I think we would have a lot more compelling case for our faith. I think here, I mean, this is just one person's opinion. I think if every follower of Jesus in the world lived like Jesus, every mosque would be empty. Because all this hate and all these other faults, who, who doesn't want to be uh, loving like Jesus was loving? I think it'd be pretty compelling. I think the problem isn't that, uh, that Christianity isn't militant enough. 
I think the, the problem is Christianity isn't loving enough. We're not compelling. We don't look like Jesus. When we read the stories in the Bible, uh, we, don't, we don't look like that. One last anecdote. I was in Atlanta, Georgia not too long ago. They say Atlanta has more, the highest church attendance of any city in America. 79 churches, I believe it was, over 3,000 people, 79 megachurches. But when I was in Atlanta, it didn't really feel like a Jesus place. In fact, it hardly felt at all different from New York City or Seattle, where church attendance isn't quite as prominent. So I say to myself, wow, something's wrong there, Zip. Something's wrong. Wow. Well, Lloyd had another question. Yes. And he said, or he asked rather, We've heard you saying something about being a Jesus follower and not calling yeah. yourself a Christian. Could right, you please yeah. elaborate a little on that? Well, Christianity, the word Christianity is only mentioned three times in the New Testament, and twice it was in a derogatory way. It's not a bad word, but for the reasons that I've mentioned earlier, it's become something else around the world. I travel quite a bit, and I know you do too, Vip. And if I'm in Kosovo, to be a Christian means that I'm the guy that killed the Muslims. When I was in Egypt not too long ago, right before the revolution, I was sitting with some Muslim friends. And to them, to be a Christian means to be a supporter of George Bush, to be a part of a political party. So I distance myself at times from that word because in Scripture, the core issue was always the person of Jesus. So uh, I, I, I follow the tenets of Jesus and, and the basic um, teachings of the New Testament. But I am careful in the culture we live in that Christianity has become co-opted by people who who want to make it seem like it's only for Republicans, only for people who act in a certain way or have a certain... Um, a background or past, and I, I think the teachings of Jesus are for everybody, and uh, I think it, the world would be a lot better place if we mimicked him and not just wore a label. It's too convenient in America for people to put a label on, and then they bear no resemblance to a real follower of Jesus. So it's a provocative way to think about it, and I get a lot of responses from people who are very attached to the word. I wish we were more attached to the lifestyle than we were to the label. Well, I'm not a, I don't have a PhD in Christianity or anything like that, but I just want to, you know, English in its own self is a great language of convenience mm -hmm. because you can use the words to change what you mean. Um, is that, is that uh, only true of English? I think it's probably true. Well, that's probably because I don't know any other language. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but when you say you're a, a follower of Jesus and not a yeah. Christian, uh, are you... A follower of the Son of God, as opposed to being a Christian that means a follower of God. Yes, I think so. I believe Jesus was the Son of God. I believe. So you're not a follower of God, but you're a follower of the Son of God. Mm -hmm. We don't make a distinction in in uh, in the Scripture between Jesus and God. We believe they were together as one. the The doctrine of the Trinity is rather uh, complicated, but we believe that Jesus was God. He was the Son of God. He came as His Son. And I, and I believe all of those fundamental tenets, no question about it. I believe Jesus was more than just a prophet. He was a great prophet, but He was more than a prophet. I believe He was a teacher and a philosopher, but I believe He was more than that. And I've tried to, with my life as best I can, um, mimic Him. You know, my wife has that same problem because every time my son does something wrong, mm -hmm. she blames me. <laughs> Fip, because she sees man. me and him. You're being persecuted. She sees me and him. Right, yeah. That's right. That's funny. Well, no, it's very interesting because it's like someone saying they're a follower of Allah, but they're not a Muslim. Yes, well, I think um, that day may be coming, eh? If the Muslim world looked at the people who have defined it, who's defined the Muslim faith? Not the majority. The minority, Al-Qaeda, has defined the Muslim faith, have they not? And so 
uh, I think that there are many Muslim friends that are saying, we want to follow Allah, which is just another word for God. And um, But we don't want to be associated with that. And that's what I'm saying. I don't want to be associated with the Crusades. I don't think that was a good representation of the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus. Nor do I want to be associated with a political movement that is just trying to get votes or uh, advance an agenda for one ballot or another. I want to attach myself to ancient principles of grace and forgiveness for every person who's made a mistake, regardless of race, color, ethnicity, gender, mm-hmm. uh, re- religious background. I, that's what I'm for. Interesting. Obama and Putin, let's move on to these two guys. Yeah. Um President Barack Obama canceled his one-on-one meeting with Russian President Putin after Russia provided asylum to the NSA leaker Edward Snowden. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've seen photos of them and, and videos of them sitting on that stage, right? Yes. They, they look like a gay couple sulk, sulking about a mutual lover. <laughs> they really do. I mean, you know, they're like really sulking out there, and, and that's not really something you'd expect two major leaders to do. Um yes. Now, they've decided not to talk or cancel their one-on-one meeting. Right. But let's yeah. talk about, I'm not sure how not talking gets you anywhere. And, and in situations yeah. like this, how do you help people move forward? Yeah. Well, uh, forgiveness doesn't happen when we're in, uh, in opposite corners, does it? I mean, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. That phrase right there is a key to marital counseling. If we're talking about a marriage or friendship mm-hmm. or an adversary... You have to get things on the table. And undoubtedly, some of this is stagecraft. And in diplomacy, that happens where everybody has to make a point and everybody has to make a statement. And so we cancel one trip. But um, at a core issue for us, if we're going to personalize it and say, how can we be better in our ethics, in our morals, in our relationships, there's no question you've got to engage. And that means listening. And that means and there are other this young man has made himself a pawn in a much bigger story and um, everybody's trying to get a bigger piece of the pie and this guy happens to be the latest saga but if we can sit down at the table and love each other and talk about core problems there's a there's a big difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping Peacekeeping says, you go to your corner, and I'm going to go to my corner, and we'll hate each other from a distance. Peacemaking says, I'm coming out of my corner, you're coming out of your corner, and we're going to disagree. But we're going to keep talking until we can solve this. And ultimately, that's how you're going to solve smaller problems in the home, in the workplace, and it's how we're going to solve some of these larger problems between nations. But you, in, 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 from your point of view, you always encourage communication. Always, always. Even if it gets always. you nowhere. How do you know it gets you nowhere? No, but that's that's one of the outcomes. You can either have, you go backwards from where you started, you stay where you are, or you move forward. It's it's one of three outcomes. Yeah, except for uh, the other options aren't available when you're in your corner. Or illegal, yeah. Yeah. Because if you're in your corner and I'm in mine and we're pouting and we're... And we're uh, staring daggers at each other, there's definitely no possibility of progress. But but if I'm willing to extend the hand of a friendship and say, yeah, okay, I don't see it this way, help me. If we come out listening and not just come out talking, mm-hmm. if we come out learning and not just lecturing, I think I think we... There's a possibility of making progress, obviously. You have to have both people in the dialogue. But for one object to get closer to another, only one of them has to move. And so if I'm willing to come out of my corner and move toward you, then we're going to get closer, guaranteed. Will we have complete agreement? No. But the possibility of peace is now on the table because I'm willing to talk. So on a public stage, what these two guys are doing in terms of not talking is really not the best of examples. I don't think so. Look at right now, VIP, we have a hero lying in his deathbed. His name is Nelson Mandela. He was 44 years old when he went into jail. Mm 
He was an angry, militant person by his own admission. And he came out of that jail almost 30 years later, a different man. Not a prisoner, but a president. And he came out, and what was he doing? He was preaching and teaching reconciliation. Forgive your enemies. So they would have, I don't know if you've ever been to South Africa, but they have an apartheid museum where they have these massive pictures as you walk through it of all of the atrocities, of all of the hurt, of all of the pain. And then you have videos running of the reconciliation trials where they talked about all of the offenses and then forgave them. They didn't ignore them. They didn't say it didn't really happen and let's everybody forget. They had them. They televised them. The whole world was in on them. And then Mandela said, let's forgive and move on. That's how it's done, in my opinion. That kind of leadership where you have some bodies. We need a leader. We need more leaders, Vip, who can transcend personal offense. We need more leaders in the home like that. We need more leaders at the bargaining table like that. So what's your sermon about this week? It's going to be about the family. This week I'm going to talk about my personal story. Mm-hmm. And my story probably reflects a lot of stories in, in our generation. My mom was pregnant with me when my biological dad left her. He was cheating on her, and he had gotten his girlfriend pregnant. And he split, and so I never met my biological father until I was 27 years old, and only then was it uh, did it happen because of some rather miraculous circumstances but i grew up he didn't know about i mean he didn't meet you for the first 27 years of your life 27 years of my life how how did you get to meet him then i was in my office one day here at the church where in fact just a few feet from where i'm sitting right now and uh we were adding a a building onto our complex here and an electrician was in my office and he saw a picture on my desk and he said is that your grandmother and I said yes it is I said do you know my grandmother and he said I think I know your family and I said how do you know my family and he was quiet and I was quiet and he said I don't think I should tell you and I looked at him and I thought this guy looks a lot like me and I said are you my dad this is my Oprah moment Vip this was my Oprah moment. I could have been on Oprah. Too bad she's not on. Oh my God! And he said, "Well, I, you're one better. You're on with the Vip Chaswell report." That's true. This is this is going to be international. But uh, he said, "I think I might be." And so that's how I met my dad. Twenty-seven years old, sitting in my office with an electrician uh, staring at me, who happened to be my biological father. So that's amazing. I know a little bit about broken families. That's I'm an amazing. expert at it. I lived it. I mean, that's all, that's. Excuse the pun. God sent. Yeah, I believe it was a divine appointment. I was able out of that episode. So it wasn't like he was making an effort to get in touch with you. It was just. Oh, absolutely not. We just happened to be living in the same town, and providentially, I would say providentially, a divine appointment. He was in my office. That's what I mean when we were talking about tragedy earlier. We can see all kinds of areas where we go, God, where were you? But then we have these divine encounters where we say, oh, you are interested in my life. And I don't know why God intervenes when he intervenes. I don't know why he sends my dad at 27 and not at 7. Uh, boy, I would have not let, it would have been nice at 13 when I was an angry teenager. No, I still can't get over this like a Hollywood moment. Yeah. So then how it, did you take it from there? I mean, that must have been a jolt. Yeah, it was a jolt. I called my mother. I told her. She was obviously devastated. And he asked me if there was anything I could do for him, and, or he could do for me, rather. And I said, well, you could write my mother an apology. So he wrote her a letter, and she wrote one back. I exchanged. They never met. Exchanged letters for them. I met with him five times, Vip. And uh, I called after the fifth time. I called to say thank you for getting together for lunch, and his phone was disconnected. And uh, so I called his workplace, and he, uh, the people who answered said he had quit his job, and I asked if they had left a forwarding address or a phone number, and they gave me a cell number. I called him, and I said, hey, what's up? Hmm. And he said, I, uh, I don't want to do this. 
please don't call me anymore. So I never, I haven't spoken to him since. So my dad left me not once but twice, brother. And it's uh, been, it's been part of my story to help people who have been through broken families and neglect and abandonment get free. If he so was to contact me. you again. No, I have, my phone number is the same as it's been. For no, if he was to. Yes. Uh-huh. I'm assuming that maybe he was consumed by guilt second time round. Yeah. And that stays with him because, you know, I mean, how shocking is that? You're, you're working in an office and, and your son's right there. Yes, yes. Um, how would you approach it? There has to be an element of anger in you. There has to be an element of, well, now, anger twice. I, I feel more sympathy than I do anything. You know, Vip, here I'm, I'm talking on Fox News radio right now. Mm-hmm. I've been around the world. I have two wonderful children. I make a great living. Uh, I have a great family. I'm not sure I was the real loser in this equation. I think sometimes we, we only look at things from self-interest. But how do you manage the resentment, which obviously you would feel if he wants to show up again? Oh, of course. Forgiveness. I say forgiveness isn't a one-time experience. It's an it's a operating system. This guy, when he left, he set into motion all kinds of bad things. Would you still call him dad? No, I don't think I would. A dad is something bigger. He was my father. He fathered me. But here we go with words again. Okay, words go matter, ahead. Vip. Words matter. <laughs> they brother. do, they do. They really matter. I think sometimes we're so... Last, last week we talked about how careless we are with our words. I think um, I had a dad. My mom remarried right. when I was... And he, he became the dad. He was at my games. He put food on the table. This guy never offered a dollar in support. So No birthday cards, no... No, no contact. So I would just say forgiveness has become an operating system for me. When some of those things come up and come out, I just remind myself, well, I've been forgiven of a lot. I'm 45 years old, so in the last 45 years, I've made some mistakes. I am not a paragon of virtue sitting here judging another man. And so I've... I've uh, learned that I, I would appreciate forgiveness directed my way, and I'm going to give it when it's um, requested from me. So that's my talk this week. People can come online at lifecentertacoma.com and listen to it. And, and I hope they do, because I know a lot of families have been hurting. I'm going to tell that story and talk a little bit about some of the issues that we're talking about right now. And what about families that are intact, but the relationship is broken? A lot of families these days... They live together, especially where the husband and wife don't see eye to eye anymore. But they continue with their sense of obligation to be joint parents, living under the one roof, maybe for economical purposes, or even from a responsible purpose. They want to keep the wholesomeness for the child, that it's not a broken home seen from outside but within it's broken. It's almost like a cancer. You can't see it from outside, but it eats away within you. Yeah, that happens all the time. They say that 50% of the marriages end in divorce, but that doesn't mean that the other 50% ride off into the sunset, does it? No, it doesn't, because the divorce can happen emotionally. It doesn't have to happen on paper. So now, now we're back to some of the themes we talked about with Putin and Obama where mom and dad have to come out of their corners and stop keeping peace and start making peace. Well, they have. They've come out of their corner. No, no, they're, they're keeping peace. They're keeping if peace. If you're in a so. loveless marriage or in a family where there's, you're together in name only, that's what I would, back to words again, but that's what I would call keeping peace. You're, you're not lobbing grenades, but you're not putting your gun down either. And we need to, somebody's got to go first, Vip. Somebody's got to say, I'm sorry. Somebody's got to bring the family together. We have a little tradition in our family mm-hmm. that we started years ago where on everybody's birthday, if it's your birthday, we sit you in the hot seat. And everyone in the family, extended family and other guests that are there, have to give one affirmation 
to the person in the hot seat because we think everybody everybody's got to know their role in the family and how important they are. Everybody's got to be a part of the answer. Everybody's valued. And it takes work, and you've got to be intentional. Families don't happen on accident. Great families don't happen on accident. You can have a baby on, an, uh, on accident, but you can't build a family on accident. You've got to be intentional. So that, that's, that's uh, as big an epidemic in America as the divorce issue is the families that are staying together and they're losing. They've lost the intentional drive to keep this family together. Too busy, too many activities, too many pressures, too many voices, and somebody's got to take the lead and that go for it. I hope it's dads, by the way. It could be as simple as being too much out of love. Well, marriage sometimes, one person said one time, marriage is what keeps you together until you fall in love again. We both know that love, if we're talking about love as a feeling, that, boy, that ebbs and flows depending on what you had for dinner and how tired you are. Love is a decision. You've got to engage with it. And um, I'm hoping that we can reverse that trend as a culture. I think a sense of responsibility outweighs the feeling of love. I That's applaud. I applaud the the sense of responsibility. I wish more people had it. I just don't think it has to be one or the other. It can be both and. You can have a responsibility and a It can be both. Together. It can be both and it should be both, but I think a sense of responsibility if you have mothered or fathered a child, um you owe that child to a great degree no question a sense of having two parents no question i'd rather a child grow up in a in a family that's struggling but together yes yeah that's i think that's preferable well i'm really looking forward to uh hearing your sermon this week so thank you sir this should be very very good and thank you so much for coming on the show and more importantly Thank you for sharing that uh, story about yourself. Ah, uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you. All right, Pastor Dean, thank you again. Ladies and gentlemen, this is it for today. Feel free to send in your comments to our Facebook page at facebook.com/thevipjazzwellreport or tweet me if you dare at vipjazzwell on Twitter. Thank you for listening and keep your ears open for the next airing of the Vip Jazzwell Report coming soon.